Her inception in 1948, Israel has fought numerous battles against a coalition of Islamic nations that have sought her destruction. Amazingly, despite being vastly outnumbered and against incredible odds, Israel has been victorious against her enemies. However, what does the future hold for Israel? One important biblical prophecy predicts a large Islamic coalition that will arise against the nation. What countries will be in this coalition? Will Israel survive? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, we are going to listen to Pat's guest, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, who recently presented a message at the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference entitled, The Coming Middle East War. Let's join Dr. Hitchcock now as he presents his message on The Coming Middle East War. Well, I want to kind of back clean up here tonight, and we're going to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me to those great chapters in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's a story I heard a while back about a uh, bunch of Arabs that were over the Middle East gathered in a certain place, and they uh, heard a voice come from over a hill, and it said, uh, one Jew can whip 25 Arabs. Uh, they were really upset by this, so they sent 25 Arabs over the hill, and they hear some noise over there, and all of a sudden it's dead quiet. And then they hear a voice come over the hill that says, one Jew can whip 50 Arabs. Well, they're really incensed now, so they send 50 troops over the hill, and they hear some shooting and uh, noise taking place over there, and all of a sudden it's dead quiet. Well, a few minutes later, they hear the voice say, one Jew can whip 100 Arabs. Now, they're as upset as can be now. They send a hundred of their crack troops over the hill, and again, they hear all this shooting and all this commotion and all this taking place. Finally, they see one lone Arab, and he comes running back over the hill, and he hollers back to him, and he says, go back, go back. He says, it's a trap. There's two of them. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about the modern history of Israel, the nation of Israel has enjoyed unparalleled military success since its founding in 1948. I mean, war after war, the Jewish people have come out victorious. 1948, of course, their war of survival, really, for their nation. 1956, the Suez War. 1967, the Six-Day War. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War. But according to the Word of God, the nation of Israel, the modern nation, is going to face its greatest military challenge in the future. And we see that recorded in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in a passage of Scripture that I like to call the coming Middle East War. Now, before we get into Ezekiel 38 and 39, I thought it'd be good for us to just step back for a moment and kind of get a larger view of the book of Ezekiel, kind of an overview of it. If you know anything about the book of Ezekiel, he's a prophet, a Jewish prophet. He was carried away in the second wave of of the Babylonian captivity. Remember, Daniel was taken in the first group in 605 B.C., and then Ezekiel was taken in the second group of captives in 597 B.C. And he's writing from there in Babylon, and the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel are judgment on Judah. It's what God was going to do to the two southern tribes of Judah back in that day. And then in chapters 25 to 32, it's judgment on the near enemies of Israel, what God was going to do to the near surrounding enemies of Israel. And then in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel in Babylon gets news that Jerusalem has been destroyed. And now rather than a message of judgment, 
He's recommissioned by God, and now Ezekiel begins to give a message of restoration and a message of hope for the Jewish people for the future. So Ezekiel 33 through 39 is about the regathering and the restoration of the nation of Israel. And of course, part of that section is Ezekiel 37, that great prophecy of the dry bones, where it pictures the nation of Israel coming back together like these dried bones that have been lying parched out in a field for a long period of time, and they begin to come back together again. And so Ezekiel 37 pictures a great regathering of the Jewish people in the end times to their land. And then, of course, right after that is Ezekiel 38 and 39, where this regathered, reconstituted nation of Israel is going to be attacked by this coalition of nations listed here in Ezekiel 38. Now, to unpack these chapters, what I want to do is use the five old kind of journalist questions. I want to look at the who, the when, the why, the what, and the how of this coming Middle East war. And then the final point, how, I just want to look at how some of the events in our world today are setting the stage for this battle. So I want to begin with the first question, that is, who's going to be involved in this, or who will the participants be? Let me read chapter 38, verses 1 to 7 for us. Notice it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying... So this is the very word of God that we're reading. Seven times in this chapter, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have the statement, Thus says the Lord God. So what we're reading tonight is the very word of God Himself. And of course, God is the only one who can predict the future. heard a story recently about a man that went to visit a psychic... And there was a sign on the front door that said, closed due to unforeseen circumstances. Well, there aren't any unforeseen circumstances with God. God knows the end from the beginning. I like what I heard a man say recently. He says, the the Trinity never meets an emergency session. There's never any panic in heaven. God knows the future. And he tells it to us here. He says, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Prophesy against him. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I'll bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Bethlehem from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself and all your companies that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. Now, in this section I've read here, there are ten proper names listed here. And, of course, the prominent ones at the beginning are Gog and Magog. And so this is often called the prophecy of Gog and Magog, or it's often called the battle of Gog and Magog. It's interesting, Gog and Magog are mentioned two times in the Quran. In the Quran, they're called Yajuj and Majuj. And they take the story here and kind of twist it like they do all the stories in Scripture and turn it around where it's Muslims who are being invaded and Jesus who comes to deliver them. But they have their own version of the Gog-Magog prophecy. Now the word Gog here refers to the leader of this invasion because it says Gog is of the land of Magog. So clearly this is a person. Now, I don't think the name will really be Gog. Gog's more like a title. It's kind of like Pharaoh or president, but it means exalted or or high or a mountain. So it probably speaks of the pride and uh, the exaltation of this person. 
Now, it's important to know that Gog here is not the same person as the Antichrist. A lot of people make the mistake of making Gog here the leader of this great northern and southern and eastern confederacy, the same thing as the Antichrist who's going to lead the great western confederacy or a reunited Roman Empire. So it's not, they're, they're not the same. Gog is going to be the leader primarily of this northern confederacy with some eastern and southern nations joined in as well. Now the other nine names that are listed here are all geographical locations. Now, none of these places exist today. You're not going to go on a map and find Rosh or Meshach or Tubal or any of these other places. So what we have to do is go back to Ezekiel's day when he's writing here to about 570 B.C., and we have to find out where were these places in that day and what are the modern counterparts to those places. Because the names may have changed many times throughout history. In fact, they may change again. But we need to find out where these locations are today. Now, one of the nations mentioned here is Magog. This was the land of the ancient Scythians who roamed the steppes of Central Asia. We don't know exactly what nations are involved in Magog, but Central Asia today is the underbelly of the old Soviet Union. Sixty million Muslims live in those five countries that are now uh, independent nations. I call them the five stands. You know, Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and so on. Could also include Afghanistan. We really don't know, but it's some of these nations um, in Central Asia. Uh, It also mentions here Rosh or Rosh. And I believe that Rosh here is Russia. I mean, the Septuagint, which was uh, Patrick mentioned earlier, it's translated here uh, Ras. Gesenius, the great Hebrew scholar, tells us this is undoubtedly the Russians. There was an ancient people who lived in Ezekiel's day called the Rus or the Ras or the Rasapu people who live in the area, the southern part of what we know today as Russia. Also, three times in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it says these invaders are coming from the remotest parts of the north. Well, if you take a ruler and draw from Israel straight north as far as you can go, you end up in Russia. So I think it's telling us here that Russia, what we know today as Russia, will be part of this invasion. It mentions here also Meshach and Tubal. Now, I grew up with the old Schofield Study Bible. And if you have a Schofield Bible, some of you may even have that tonight. In Ezekiel 38, verse 2, he says that Meshach and Tubal are Moscow and Tobolsk. Of course, Moscow being the capital city of, of Russia and Tobolsk, a city way up in Siberia. Now, the problem with that is you can't just make names in the Bible fit modern names just because they sound alike. If you go back and look in ancient times, the ancient Mushki and the ancient Tubalu or the Tiberini were in where, what today is modern-day Turkey. And I think that's a much better place to put ancient Meshach and Tubal. That's where they were in ancient times. Also, Gomer that's mentioned, you'll notice down in verse 6, a lot of people, again, because it sounds alike, said this was Germany, especially East Germany back during the time of of the Cold War and the time of the Soviet Union. But again, Gomer was in modern-day Turkey. They were the ancient Sumerians. Josephus called the Galatians. You remember Paul visited the area of Galatia in central Turkey? Josephus called Galatians, the Galatians, the Gomerites. So Gomer also, I believe, is in modern-day Turkey. Also Togarma, or Beth Togarma, the word Beth in in Hebrew just means the house of Togarma, is also in modern-day Turkey, in the eastern part of modern Turkey. 
put up in verse 5, as Kirby mentioned earlier, was the land to the west of Egypt, which is modern-day Libya. Could include Algeria and that nation's further west as well. The nation here in 38.5 called Ethiopia, at least in the New American Standard, the actual Hebrew word there is Cush. And the kingdom of Cush was just to the south of where we have on our map today, Egypt. And so it's modern-day Sudan. And then, of course, Persia in 38.5 is the modern-day nation of Iran. It became Iran in 1935 and became the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, in 1978, 1979. Now, if we have uh, the map, you can kind of see here, of course, Israel there in the center. If the identifications we have here are correct, then you have Rosh or Rosh, Rush up to the north, Magog or Central Asia to the north and east, Persia or modern-day Iran. Notice, by the way, that's Iran, and to the left of that, between Israel and Iran, that's Iraq. Look how much larger Iran is than, than Iraq. It's a large, massive area there on the Persian Gulf. And then to the south, you have Kush, modern-day Sudan. Then to the west over there, you actually that should be a little further over. My map wasn't big enough. Would be Put over there in Libya. And then to the north in Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Togarma. Those are all in the area of modern-day Turkey today. Now, these are the exact nations predicted by Ezekiel 2,600 years ago. Now, to me, that proves the inspiration of the Bible. And here you have these nations today that are Islamic nations that have a desire to attack Israel and to see Israel destroyed. And the Bible predicted these exact places 2,600 years ago. And these are nations that are currently developing ties with one another. Now, one of the things you'll notice here, and this is really important in a lot of people's view of prophecy today, they will point out that these nations in Ezekiel 38 are kind of what's called the far enemies of Israel. You'll notice none of the near enemies of Israel right around Israel are mentioned in Ezekiel 38. There's no mention of Arabia or Saudi Arabia. There's no, well, actually they are mentioned, but they're not an enemy. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. There's no mention of ancient Ammon or Moab or Edom, which are modern-day Jordan. There's no mention of Syria to the north. There's no mention of Egypt to the south. Uh, there's no mention of Lebanon, ancient Tyre, or that area. So what a lot of people believe today is they'll say, well, look, if these are the far enemies of Israel that are going to invade in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that means something has to happen before this to the near enemies of Israel. They're going to have to get wiped out somehow. And a lot of people see Psalm 83 fulfilled in the near future. I don't hold that view myself. I don't think Psalm 83 is a prediction of a separate war. I'm not going to go into the reasons. I've got the whole chapter on that in my book out there, Middle East Burning. But I want to just mention that. I see two great wars involving Israel in the end time. Now, there's going to be a lot of wars during the end times because the Bible says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But I see two great wars involving Israel, this Gog-Magog war here, and then the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. We'll talk about uh, that in just a moment. But it also could be, notice down in verse 6 of chapter 38, it says the very last words there are many peoples with you. So it could be that Ezekiel has just listed these far enemies, but when he says there's going to be many peoples with you, that it could include more than what he's listed. In other words, he could have just be kind of throwing that in and saying, and by the way, there's going to be many peoples with you. In other words, even more than the far enemies, it includes the near ones as well. 
So that's another possibility that this prophecy could actually include the near enemies also. But what we have here then is a coalition involving Russia, Central Asia, Turkey, Iran, Sudan, and Libya. Not too difficult to envision today. Well, second thing I want to talk about is when is this invasion going to take place? What is the period of time when it's going to occur? Look at verse 8. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that's restored from the sword. In other words, you're going to come into the land of Israel. It's going to have been restored from the sword at this time, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. So obviously, for this invasion to occur, the Jewish people have to be in their land, right? I mean, they can't come and invade the Jews in Israel if they're not there. So the first great precondition for this prophecy to be fulfilled is the Jews have to be in their land. But notice the second precondition is they have to be living securely. You notice down in verse 11, I will go against those at rest that live securely. So it's telling us whenever this invasion happens, Israel has to be living in security. There's a lot of different views about when this invasion is going to take place. One view is that it's already happened sometime in the past. Now, some of you here are probably familiar with the word, the word preterism. Preterists believe that the prophecies and scriptures, even the ones in the New Testament, have already been fulfilled. And they take this prophecy here as having been fulfilled, and they'll, they'll say this. Well, they'll say, look, at verses 1 to, to 6 here, it talks about horses and, and swords and spears. They'll say, well, That can't be talking about an end-time future invasion because they're not going to be riding horses and using spears and all of that in the future. So how do we explain this? Well, it could be that Ezekiel is simply using a description of ancient weapons that people understood in that day, but that when this event actually takes place, it will be the modern counterpart of those. Just like he mentions these ancient places, And we look for the modern counterpart of these geographical locations. So that's one way you could explain it. Another thing, though, is Dr. John Walvoord. I'm sure some of you know that name, Dr. Walvoord, the great prophecy teacher so many of us learned a lot from. He said it could be that once you get into the tribulation, that people will have actually reverted to using these weapons. Things are going to be so bad in the world. I mean, you're going to run out of oil, possibly. We don't have any idea the devastation going to be taking place. What could have happened by this time? It's interesting. Albert Einstein said this, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. An interesting statement. That could be true, and that could be what Ezekiel is describing here. But either way, this invasion can't be passed because Ezekiel says clearly it's going to happen in the latter years, in the last days. Also, nothing even remotely similar to this has ever happened in the past. So we know if it's going to be literally fulfilled, as prophecies are, then it has to be in the future. Now, another view is a lot of people put this invasion before the tribulation period, and they appeal to chapter 39, verse 9. Notice verse 39, verse 9. It says, then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them. This is after these armies are destroyed. Both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears, and for seven years they'll make fires of them. So the Jewish people, when this battle's over, are going to use the implements of war and burn them for seven years. 
Now, people will say, well, this is perfect. If this invasion happens before the seven-year tribulation, we have a seven-year period. That means they burn these weapons through the whole seven-year tribulation period. In fact, if you've read the Left Behind series, in the first Left Behind book, the original one, one of the opening events is this battle of Gog and Magog, this Russian invasion of Israel that takes place, this Russian Islamic invasion of Israel. Now, a lot of my friends like Tim LaHaye and others hold this view, but the problem for me is, it says here in this passage, this is going to take place in the latter years. It's going to be in the last days. Those are phrases in the Old Testament that look to the time of the Messianic age or the time right before it. And to me, before the tribulation period doesn't fit the latter years or the last days. Here's another problem, though. How can Israel be living at peace and living in security before the tribulation starts? To me, they're not living in peace and security today. A lot of people say, well, you know, they have a lot of security over there. They do, but I mean, they're on constant alert over there. It's hardly to say, like verse 11 says, that they're at rest, living securely. So I don't see how that could happen before the rapture. Another view is a lot of people see Ezekiel 38 here as being the same thing as the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. The problem with that is, again, Israel has to be at peace whenever this occurs. And the one time we know that Israel won't be at peace is the end of the tribulation period. I mean, they're going to have been hunted and hounded for three and a half years by the Antichrist. The other thing is this invasion here and Armageddon are different. In Ezekiel 38, specific nations are mentioned that invade. Whereas remember Armageddon, it's all the nations that come. In Ezekiel 38 here, the leader is Gog from up north of Israel. At Armageddon, the leader is the Antichrist who leads a reunited or revived Roman Empire. So I think these are two separate events, Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Armageddon. Now, I don't hold any of those views. Now, what I want to do is like J. Vernon McGee used to say, now let me give you the right view. And, of course, that's my view, of course. And my view is that it happens in the first half of the tribulation period, that that's when this invasion is going to occur. There's only two times in Israel's future when we know they're going to be at peace and at rest and living securely. One of those times is during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And we know this invasion is not going to occur then because there's going to be peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is going to be ruling. The only other time we know of in Israel's future when they're going to be at peace and at rest, living securely, is when they're living under that that seven-year peace treaty with the Antichrist that's spoken of in Daniel 9.27. Now, the Antichrist is going to break it, you remember, at the midpoint. But during those first three and a half years, Israel's going to be living at peace. So that's when I see that this is going to take place. They're going to be living under that treaty with the Antichrist. Now, if you'll uh, put the other chart up here that I had or the other uh, graphic I had, this is a great chart. I didn't make it. That's why I can say that. Now, this is from a really good book called Charting the End Times by Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice. I've made a few changes to it to, to reflect some things I wanted to put in it. But I want you to notice some things. Over on the left side there, you'll notice that's where we are today, and we're in the time of the current church age. We're in the time of the preparation for the fulfillment of prophecy. One of these days, the rapture of the church is going to take place, and we're going to be out of here. And I think Daryl's going to talk about that tomorrow, about some of the different views of the rapture. And the view that I hold, I know he holds as well, is the pre-trib view. The rapture's going to happen before the tribulation. But notice, and this is very important, when the rapture takes place, 
The tribulation doesn't necessarily start at that point in time. A lot of people have this idea that the rapture takes place and the seven-year tribulation starts immediately. The rapture doesn't start the seven-year tribulation. The rapture ends the church age. So the church age could end tonight with the coming of Christ to take His bride to heaven. Remember, the Spirit came suddenly and the church was founded on the day of Pentecost. You know, suddenly as the Spirit came, it's going to end one of these days suddenly as the Spirit indwelling the body of Christ is taken out of the earth. But there's going to be a time after the rapture that I call a time of further preparation. More stage setting will take place. Then at some point after that, the Antichrist will make the seven-year treaty with Israel, and that's when the seven-year tribulation starts. This concludes part one of Dr. Mark Hitchcock's study on the coming Middle East war. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this study and enjoy other great resources on this site. Also, the entire series from the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference featuring Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Kirby Anderson, and other fine teachers is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by the teachings of Pat's guests, like Dr. Mark Hitchcock, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat's guest, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, concludes this study on the current coming Middle East war right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 o